eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. Hi and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn and with me this week as usual is Neil Bradley. Is it Sunday already? Hi everyone. Yes, it's Sunday already. I don't know how it got to be Sunday, but there it is. Um, Anyway, thanks for tuning in. This week we are, we were meant to be talking to uh, TJ Coles who is um, a British uh, academic. Uh, He (coughs) studies the philosophy of neurology and cognition at the University of Plymouth, UK. He's director of Plymouth Institute of Peace Research. He's the editor and co-author of Voices for Peace and author of the New Atheism Hoax. His political writings have appeared in New Statesman, Lobster, Peace Review, and Z Magazine. He's also a columnist with with Axis of Logic, and in 2013, was shortlisted for the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism. So we were, we kind of wanted to, and have kind of, sort of, maybe, sort of, have him on the line, but not really. Um, DJ Cole. So I mean, <laughs> how's that for an introduction? Well, you may or may not be listening to uh, an interview with DJ Cole today. Otherwise, um, you'll just be listening to us. To, to yeah, we couldn't connect unfortunately well, just before the show. But who's there? We, no, we, we may be able to do this. Um, just hold on a sec. I'll, I'll explain what's happening right now because we've got we've got Tim on the line over here, right. and I'm pretty sure if um, if if he talks that the audience will be able to hear him. But I'm not sure if Joe and Neil will be able to hear him because of just the way that Skype works with it. So I think um, just so Tim, can you hear me right now? Okay. Hi, Tim. We're just going to ask our audience right now. Uh, Audience people, can you hear Tim talking right now? <laughs> okay. Okay, but I think what we're going to need to do, Tim, I just sent you... Um, no, no, they can't hear you. So, Tim, I, just on Skype, I sent you a chat message with the call-in link to the show. I think it might be a new one, a different one from the one I sent you previously. So just try going to that link again, and we'll see if that will work. Well, yep, on Skype. Yep. If you could, um, if you could just uh, ask uh, Tim to go to the uh, radio.sat.net page, just okay, the straight yep, up, the straight up that. one, and click on the uh, click on the good idea on the show, and then just click on that big red button there that says "Speak with the Host." And if he has okay. a you... headset, yep. He does. So how about you just put me on mute and I'll talk to him and, and get this sorted out. Okay, that's all. Scenes. So just let's have him call in as a caller. Right. Okay. Yeah, we will do. 
All right. The reason we want to speak with Tim today is because he's re okay, recently Tim? published another book called Britain's Secret Wars. Carry on. Okay. This is a great little book. It's only a couple hundred pages long. And, you know, so much could be said about Britain's involvement, in, British government's involvement in many war theatres, and past and present. But Tim Coles just simply said, all right, I'm going to take a few case studies only and just look at those. It's a simple book. It's got an introduction and then it's split into two parts. The first is a set of case studies about conflict zones most are probably familiar with. We all are, in fact, some extent or another. And then part two is a set of case studies that very little, I mean, I didn't know Britain was involved to the extent that Tim Coles explains. Um, hopefully we'll have him on to tell us a bit about those uh, war zones. The case studies in particular are involvement in Somalia, which kind of makes sense because historically that was a British colony. And then Sri Lanka, which is still in a state of civil war. Just this week, you may have catched it on the news. You probably didn't, though, because it wasn't really that much... Peace doesn't, let's be honest, peace doesn't make headlines. Um, officially, Colombia's civil war of 50 years has come to an end. What do people know? Uh, it's kind of known that the U.S. has been involved, but uh, the British involvement is very unknown. And Tim, Tim's books, he's not a guy to speculate. He only relies on statements and documents made by or said by the British government. So he sticks to the facts. I like that about his book. All the sources are solid. He'll only say what he can say, and what can be said based on what is available is a lot. So it's a neat little book. Yeah, and it's written in fairly very accessible. Yeah, kind of he's style. straight it's up. He doesn't waffle big. around. He comes. In fact, the first introductory chapter um, spits it straight out. So this is the why. Why would Britain do want to do all this? Okay, the empire is long gone, the official empire. Then why on earth is it still doing it? He gives an explanation. It makes a lot of sense, and off he goes. Let's look at some case studies. Mm. What is his explanation? Um, he does tap a little bit into history to, to explain what free trade is. He gets it down to it. It's economics to do with economics and trade, and the British, on the, the wider Anglo-American world, have a, a certain definition of trade which is inherently unfair. It means we get all the advantages and all the rest of you will put up with it. It's a basically inherently unfair worldview. So all trade the British get involved with um, must produce higher returns for British and Western interests than for the interests of anyone else, basically, in the developing world, third world, whatever you want to call it, the rest of the world. Uh, and besides, so besides an explanation of economics, of course, it touches a little bit on the political ideology, if you want to call it that. It's not really an ideology. Um of the British Empire and how that gradually became the Anglo-American Empire. <clears throat> and 
there's basically a power structure in place, as listeners know, and all these conflicts with varying degrees of involvement, you know, the extreme cases, the Middle East and Iraq, when the British and the Americans sent in actual troops. But um, most of the time they don't. They use proxy forces. And there are varying degrees of involvement. Sometimes they'll actually create a whole army. Yeah. Hi. Uh, is this Tim? Okay, we're going to disconnect from Skype. Okay. Hi, uh, who do we have on the line? Hello, this is Tim here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can, Tim. It's, oh, uh, great. Okay, that's good. It's great, great to finally... Uh, Great to finally talk yeah. to you. All right. And, <laughs> all right, we're all I'm here. I'm just going to try uh, plugging in some headphones so I can get a better sound. Okay. Hello, can you still hear me? Yes. We can hear you. And... Uh, and we hear you as well from here, Tim. So it looks like all guys. systems go. These headphones. Okay, the line here is not great, I'm afraid, but I'll see what I can do. Okay, can you hear us okay, or is it... Yep, just about. Just about, okay, we'll, we'll speak up. Okay, thank you. No problem. Tim, welcome to our Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. We've just sent been discussing your book a bit. Um, why don't you tell us a bit um, about your background? We, we know of the website accessoflogic.com. You've been writing there for some years. Um, what made you want to write this book, Britain's Secret Wars? I was really appalled by the media coverage of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And I very quickly realized that innocent people were being torn to pieces by bullets and bombs. And they had nothing to do with the kind of politics that the American government and the British government were involved in. So I started to ask questions about this. I'd always been skeptical of authority, but this really gave me the motivation to start asking deeper questions and the more questions you ask the more you find out and the more you realize that the media create a false reality and so i started to research other areas and quickly learned often from primary sources that uh, britain is involved in uh, wars and conflict in many areas of the world and when you say involved in wars and conflict in many areas of the world, you're saying largely that, that these are wars or conflicts that the general public don't know about or are being told a very different story about? Some of them are simply um, suppressed by the mainstream media. So, for example, the terrible ethnic cleansing of Tamils, ethnic Tamils that took place a few years ago in Sri Lanka. We had blanket coverage in the UK of that, that the Sri Lankan government had murdered uh, 20,000, and then the figure became 40,000 ethnic Tamils. 
There was a lot of condemnation of that. But nobody, as far as I know, has reported the fact that Britain trained the Sri Lankan military, supplied the arms, vetoed a draft resolution at the United Nations Security Council uh, in order for the Sri Lankan government to conduct this massacre. And this generalizes in other areas, such as Papua New Guinea, Mm. with the Indonesian uh, police and military, their involvement there. For example, Amnesty International, the famous human rights group, talks about uh, Indonesia's atrocities in West Papua, uh, but doesn't really talk about involvement. And this information is available, it's just not in the media, so you have to look for it in the government record. Right. So it's quite an indictment of how the media operates. Now, now with regard to other um, wars like Libya, um, that was justified on the grounds of humanitarian intervention, as was the bombing of Serbia back in 1999. So it seems, depending on what agenda policymakers have, they either keep wars quiet or they provide some justification for them, or at least try to. Hmm. In the case of Sh- Sri Lanka, um, in, the, in the case of Sri Lanka, I'm getting some feedback. Uh, Tim, do you have any... Do you have speakers on, if you could turn those down? Yeah, you can just use a headset. Oh, are you still there? I'm sorry, the... It's really bad. It's really bad. Can you hear me? <clears throat> uh huh. I I just got uh, I just got every other word you said there. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, it was uh, I was just asking. I was getting a bit of feedback. I thought you had some speakers on. Hmm. It's very choppy for him. I think. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear us, Tim? It, it's very, it's very poor. I'm afraid you, um, you're fading in and out. Okay. Um, what about now? It seems better. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was just asking about Sri Lanka. Um, what? Well, maybe two questions. Was the without British help to the Sri Lankan military, would uh, the Sri Lankan government have been able to wage any kind of a war against the? Ethnic Tamils. I could only catch most of what you said, but I assume it was um, to what extent did British help contribute to the massacre? Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, without British help, undoubtedly the Sri Lankan government would have attempted to continue suppressing the Tamil population. But it's very doubtful that the level of the atrocities and the efficiency with which it was carried out would have been achievable without British help. So if you uh, go to the parliamentary records, such as the House of Commons Library or uh, security experts like uh, Global Security uh, run by John Pike, they state that uh, Britain's, um, that Sri Lanka's longest military ally has been Britain. And in fact, um, Britain, of course, has a colonial history with Sri Lanka. Uh, it was um, 
taken over by Britain in the 1700s, and the ethnic Tamils were given a position of power, and labor from India was imported to work on tea plantations and so on, and Sri Lanka became a source of revenue for the empire. But once the um, majority ethnic Sinhalese wanted independence, uh, the situation changed where suddenly the Tamils were becoming the oppressed peoples. And they have posed uh, a real problem for the elites, the Sinhalese elites ever since. And um, for many decades, the Tamils have fought for an independent state, or at least uh, the Tamil Tigers have. And uh, they've experienced um, the blocking of uh, peace proposals by the Sri Lankan government. And this has escalated Tamil terrorism. So it was decided that um, this was affecting uh, international business. The levels of terrorism that the Tamils were inflicting on the Sinhalese population, I should say the Tamil Tigers, um, and also the very brutal uh, revenge and suppression strategies were becoming uh, a hindrance for business. So it seems to me, based on the evidence, that um, it was decided somewhere that the best solution was to do a major ethnic cleansing to simply crush the, the Tamil problem. And um, this really shows an escalation of British involvement. So Britain had been involved in similar operations in the 1980s, uh, which in the long run made the Tamil Tigers stronger because the population, the Tamils, um, when people are brutalized and subjected to um, exploitation and oppression, unfortunately, sometimes the response is to uh, move further to the right and further towards militarism. That's what happened. And so as the Tamils gained strength, Britain's involvement uh, with the Sri Lankan army became more intense. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Tim, you found evidence that the British government was arming the Tamil Tigers also. Uh, for Yes, yes. As far as I can see, for a period, the uh, British were training the Tamils. And this is a long-standing colonial policy of divide. And, uh, in fact, um, during the uh, scramble for Africa in the late 1800s, uh, one British colonial official said that divide and rule was the, um, the policy of Rome, and it should also be our policy. And so Britain has uh, divided in order to rule uh, many peoples, um, throughout history, it happened in India, where British agents were working with Muslims and Hindus, obviously in Palestine. Uh, it's happened in Nigeria, where Britain was working with Muslims and Christians. Uh, so the situation in Sri Lanka was no different. It's the, the aim is to control both sides where, to the extent that that's possible in order to weaken both sides. Mm-hmm. And is it just is it mainly business interests? Did, did you get that? Sorry, I didn't. No. Is it mainly business interests that uh, that motivate the British 
You know, the motivations are quite complicated. Unfortunately, the evidence does suggest that we live in a world run by clinical psychopaths. And there's plenty of good work on this by psychologists like Robert Hare and uh, a good one in uh, Britain called Kevin Dutton, who's worked with a former SAS man who I think goes under the pseudonym Andy McNabb. Mm. And they conclude that um, in any organization where there is a hierarchy, so especially in military and in media, in politics, in organized religion, you tend to get individuals that for various reasons to do with um, upbringing, possibly genetics is a factor as well. There are people who have a very limited emotional response or no emotional response to, um, to pain and suffering. These people, uh, sociopaths, psychopaths, are unable to empathize. So they will charm, lie, stab their way to the top, if necessary, of various institutions. And um, we are ending up with um, a pathocracy, an international global system designed, run, and maintained by psychopaths. And the psychopathic character seems to need to be in control. So this seems to be a core psychological element of why there is a continuing need among certain individuals to have control over the world, over other people's resources, over other people's cultures. And also as a side to that, there are, of course, business interests when you have psychopaths designing wars and designing methods of deception. Other people who may also be psychopathic or simply greedy see an opportunity. And so at the very root of this, I think it's uh, a lot to do with the psychological nature of people that make plans and also the nature of institutions. Um, when we look at some of the worst atrocities in history, like the rise of the, the Nazis, we see that um, ordinary people who not necessarily have psychopathic traits and characteristics will follow orders. They will delegate responsibility. And so um, you have individuals who might just simply need a job. They're working for a business uh, that business happens to be run by a psychopath. The board of directors might have psychopathic traits. And so they see opportunity to have control, to maximize profit. And um, so as far as I can tell, it's a complicated set of factors that would lead to these kind of wars. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever read the book Political Panorology? Sorry, I didn't get that. Have you ever read the book Political Ponderology? No, I haven't. Hmm. Okay. Um, that's a good book. Um, 
We'll maybe send you a copy. Yeah, we should. Tim, we've been saying what you just said for like 15 years, trying to get people to to see what we're seeing, that these people are psychopaths, and indeed they effectively have created a pathocracy. And uh, yeah, what you said is like music to our ears, so it's great that you, you see that too. I'd be very interested to read the book. Okay. We'll send you a copy. Um, Tim, Tim, you're... Uh, you're English, I mean, born and bred, yes? Yes. Um, so, and, I mean, I wonder, what was what was the first, was, it, was there a first um, event or first uh, theatre uh, of, of, of war, of conflict that you, that first piqued your interest or, or made you go down, started you down this path? I think it had been a slow process. Um, I had heard growing up about um, the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland, which mm. I don't know very much about because there's a tremendous amount of state censorship in Britain to do with anything involving Northern Irish politics. Mm -hmm. um, what I heard were the troubles uh, I later learned had to do with an escalation of British militarism in Ireland. But we had quite ludicrous state censorship where the leader of the political party, Sinn Féin, uh, would speak on British television but have their voice changed to discredit them. They would have to uh, speak with an actor's voice. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I thought that was rather strange. And um, I was quite interested uh, as a, a teenager in the bombing of Kosovo. I wondered why. Mm. But I was really trapped within the state school system where there was no uh, political engagement and there were no real uh, answers or interest. So it wasn't until I freed myself from what I consider to be the prison of school that I began to have some free time to pursue my own interests. And uh, I think I mentioned earlier that the more questions you start to ask, uh, the more you realize that the culture and the media don't uh, reflect reality. Mm -hmm. Well, Tim, um, first of all, just a little comment on your book, uh, Britain's Secret Wars. It just came out. It's a brand new book. And so we got to read it. And it's a great book. So I think everyone should check it out. Um, all our listeners, it's got just a ton of information in there, and it's really punchy. It's got short chapters to the point, all on these different countries in which the, the UK has been involved, all of their, you know, secret wars, as you call them. Now, I want to get into this topic of the of the secret the secrecy around these wars, because you just mentioned growing up and, you know, having some kind of inclination, but not really knowing the truth about the situation, because... Well, probably mostly because of just the nature of the secrecy surrounding all of these um, covert operations. And in the first chapter of your book, well, the introduction, you've got this section that I just think is amazing. It has some stuff in there that I was not aware of, and it's called Foreign, foreign Policy as Necessary Exploitation. And in there, you quote several kind of official policy papers and documents. Um, one was written in 1970, 1997, um, it was a Chatham House 
book called British Foreign Policy, Challenges and Choices for the 21st Century. And so you make the point that this is a public, uh, like a public book. It was publicly published, but very few copies are available because it's mainly intended for like policymakers and businessmen. But in the book, the amazing thing for me was just how open the kind of establishment is about what it's doing. And so in these publications, you really get a glimpse of what's really going on. And it's right there, you know, printed in ink for, for anyone to read. So I just want to read a, a, a quote that you have here from the book. So you write that the author explains that a, sex, a successful foreign policy requires a degree of secrecy and duplicity, a willingness to employ spies, engage in bribery, threaten, even use force, compromise principles, pursue clandestine, sometimes illegal operations, and support dubious regimes. Um, another quote is, governments are expected to downplay the interests of humanity as a whole, except when those interests overlap with the national interest. And then you quote just some other papers that are just, that some of the things these people say are just remarkable. I was wondering if you could just comment on the nature of what these people say, kind of in semi-private versus what we get in the news and through official, um, like, uh, official statements or the, the things that we see just in our everyday perusal of the news. Well, the, the quotes that you just mentioned are, to me, really definitive of the pathological characteristic of the people in power. I wonder who but a sociopath or a psychopath would say that exploitation is necessary. And yeah. These books, as you mentioned, were not intended for public consumption. They are available, but you have to look. I actually found that book accidentally in my university library. So, of course, I borrowed it. And mysteriously, it's disappeared since then. Uh, so I went and bought a hard copy of it through Amazon. So um, I'd recommend people um, get a hard copy of that one. But the this is quite uniform throughout um, documents which sometimes are classified and um, the government has a long-term uh, classification policy where it will keep documents secret for many, many decades. And one of the best authors is Mark Curtis, who has written Web of Deceit and Unpeople. He goes through the post-World War II uh, now declassified records and finds similar statements from all over the establishment, from the Foreign Office and from other sources, which say pretty much the same thing, that um, any kind of um, political movement, party, organization, which brings people together and nationalizes resources in the interests of the general public is a severe threat to democracy. Well, that is democracy when you have people getting together and organizing their lives. But from the warped perspective of the people in power, uh, democracy is a democracy of elites. This is quite, um, this has a historical basis. It was as late as the mid 1700s that only 6% of the population of Britain had the right to vote. And that was, of course, the, the landed gentry, the elites. And so it took um, centuries of struggle among ordinary people 
to achieve minimal rights, such as the right to vote. And um, the elites that currently form and shape uh, foreign policy are terrified of this um, wave of democracy, the, the crisis of democracy, as the Trilateral Commission called it in the 1970s, uh, that this will take hold in other countries. Another word they have is uh, resource nationalism, another phrase, which is this crazy idea that countries have the right to do what they want with their own resources because the resources belong to us. So we will discuss uh, ways of manipulating not just um, foreign publics, but also the domestic public, because the domestic public, whether it's uh, the domestic public in America, if we're talking about American policy planners, or the domestic public in Britain, if it's British policy planners, uh, their anti-war sentiments are a threat to this agenda of global domination. And so um, you find quite consistently in these kind of planning documents that uh, when elites and policymakers are talking amongst themselves, they're quite open about their uh, objectives, that they have to deceive the domestic population and they have to uh, try and divide and rule foreign populations. And to me, what was uh, a real indictment when I found a lot of these quotes and sources is the fact that the mainstream media simply don't report them. These are, these are available. I mean, you have to look for them, but that's the job of a journalist to look and investigate. Uh, and it's, um, you know, they're, they're quite easy to find. It doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of research to find them. Mm. And yet, um, that if journalists in the mainstream were to report this, the journalists would not be doing their job. The, the, their job is to the interests of um, whoever they're working for. So in the case of the BBC, the journalists are working for the crown and for the state. Uh, and in the case of some of the newspapers or uh, in Britain, we have um, a commercial channel which is sponsored by commercial revenues. Uh, their job is to um, serve their editors, and the editor's job is to serve the, the board of directors, the CEOs, and so on, um, whom, as I said, could very well be psychopaths, because it's, again, that hierarchical institution where responsibility is delegated. There is also the uh, conditioning response of working for pay, working for a reward, rather than working for uh, your own interest and your own uh, need or interest to explore the truth. Yeah, when you mentioned, when you said that um, these people talk quite openly among themselves, um, I can imagine that they would because this kind of policy of seeing the world and the resources of the world of nominally sovereign uh, countries as their resources, as the resources of the British or Americans, uh, that's been going on for a long time, and I'm talking here about hundreds of years in terms of the British Empire, for example. I would say at first maybe really became seated in the minds of these elites in in, in the UK or in Britain uh, you know, several hundred years ago when they embarked on this idea of, uh, of establishing an empire which is effectively uh, pillaging and plundering the resources of other countries. 
so they have a 300-year history, I suppose, of, of doing that and, and that being normal, that being how business is done. So for them, uh, and I'm talking about when I say them, I mean the elites who are brought up through the ranks and stuff, they... Um, that's the world they live in, and that's normal. So, yeah, they'll talk about it uh, among themselves in very open terms, but obviously they're aware that they need to keep this information from the general public. And as you just said, they do so through the media, uh, censoring the truth through the media, uh, because they realize, I think, our, our, it would seem that they realize that it doesn't really sound very good. Certainly it doesn't sound democratic, and uh, uh, in the words of... Uh, American presidents, uh, it's not really, doesn't really jive with the idea of spreading freedom and democracy. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I would only add that it's in Britain, it's a very reinforcing culture, a, a class culture, where you have uh, many policy planners in the Foreign Office and in other institutions, the Ministry of Defense, tend to come from uh, wealthy established backgrounds that that do have that colonial history and so for them it's not only normal but it's a reinforcing culture in in some ways the the lower classes the middle classes are kept out i mean the foreign office i've never been there but i've seen pictures of it it looks like a palace mm. it's a real it's a real establishment venue and it's the kind of place where they want um anybody but the the upper classes to be kept out. Now, it is obviously possible, and it does happen, that people from the lower or middle classes would work their way up into that system, but then they become absorbed into it, and so there's no interest in trying to make humanitarian changes. And in fact, uh, John Pilger, who's made some excellent documentaries, in his documentaries has quoted... Uh, several people who have worked in these establishments uh, who have raised issues of human rights and have been told by their colleagues, don't be so stupid, you know. our, our aim here is to achieve our objectives. We're not interested in human rights. That's just for the public. That's, that's a bit of spiel, a bit of uh, propaganda for the public. So, um, mm. the, so yeah, this long line of colonial mentality is, is reinforced, I think. Hmm. I'd say they probably... Same in, in your book... Go ahead, Alan. Well, uh, in, his, uh, in your chapter on Iraq, um, you mention a story of uh, two British intelligence uh, officers dressed up as Arabs uh, opening fire on the citizens there in Basra. And um, this was a, a stunning thing to read back in 2006, uh, more than 10 years ago. Um, and basically what, what had happened was the Iraqi police caught these uh, two British agents uh, effectively wreaking havoc. And, um, and they were jailed, and there was this huge kind of conflict there in Basra uh, where the citizens kind of rallied around the police station holding these... Uh, to British Ter agents, terrorists, terrorists, and uh, and basically, uh, I guess the, the British military or intelligence had to go into this prison and break them out, uh, like a scene out of a film. Um, yeah, you know, it, it it illustrates so well 
the the secret nature of Britain's uh, well, uh, yeah. What war. was and what was I, going on? I was on? just wondering if you could provide some context there. Yeah, I, I I caught most of what you were saying. There was some break up on the line, but I think you were talking about uh, agent provocateurs in Basra. Mm-hmm. So um, Basra was, uh, I think, a Shiite majority area, which uh, has a port uh, for the oil to be transported out of Iraq. So it was one of the uh, areas that Britain was assigned to take hold of. And um, the British decided uh, quite early on, along with the Americans, that uh, divide and rule would be a strategy in Iraq the way it had been traditionally in other countries. And so uh, death squads, which were targeting uh, Sunnis, were established by uh, various agencies. Uh, There was um, a black operations unit which worked closely with the British. And presumably within that unit, it's secret so we don't really know, but presumably within that unit that was um, causing um, discord between Sunnis and Shias uh, through torture and assassination, um, there were um, agent provocateurs. Uh, so when when violence had decreased, their role presumably was to go and increase violence uh, in the manner that you mentioned. Uh, and in this particular case, the two uh, SAS men were were arrested. They were caught with um, what appeared to be bomb-making equipment in their car. And as you mentioned, they were taken to the Basra jail. And then the British military conducted a special operation to release them. Because it sends a message that uh, whenever an elite unit is in trouble, force will be used in order to rescue them. Mm-hmm. So what what is the what is the implication there then? Is the implication that these two guys were being dressed up in Arab kind of garb to look like locals driving a bomb or, or the makings of a bomb in the, in the back of a car that is the implication that this was evidence of... One of the many suicide, so-called suicide bombs or car bombs or whatever, going off in Iraq. That this was effectively, in in this case anyway, that the British were behind that, that uh, such a bombing, or that that they, that they would have been. That that's certainly what it appears to be, and in fact, uh, Iraq, uh, by the standards of the region, was um, a rather secular country, mm-hmm. and after. Um, 13 years of a blockade which was uh, implemented by the British Royal Navy and also the US Navy in which uh, every kind of product you can imagine was banned from entering Iraq. The country had disintegrated and uh, about a million people died in, in this blockade, these sanctions that was again suppressed by the media. Uh, inflation went through the roof, child mortality uh, increased to record levels, life expectancy dropped, uh, drinking water became uh, polluted and so on. And so in order to try to get the population to rally around him, 
Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq, supposedly adopted the Quran and pretended to be a devout Muslim. Um, but apart from that, there's not much indication that the country was particularly fundamentalist. No. So it was very surprising to see such a huge spate of suicide bombings. Now, uh, Robert Pape, who is an expert on suicide bombings, points out that in Lebanon there were uh, secular suicide bombers, there were Marxist suicide bombers, there were Christian suicide bombers. So Islamic uh, fundamentalism in itself is not indicative of suicide bombing. Um, but the sheer volume and the amount of time that it took seemed to indicate that there was a, a, a very well-designed program of suicide. And in fact, um, we learned from the Washington Post that the United States military had a policy to, uh, as they put it, inflate the caricature of a man called Zakawi, who was supposedly the head of al-Qaeda in mm -hmm. Iraq. Uh, this was largely a fabrication, and that they said in their leaked uh, documents that they were going to blame him for tensions. I mentioned earlier the death squads that were uh, killing Sunnis, Shia death squads, and vice versa. Uh, they were going to blame Zakawi for this, and that Zakawi also represented suicide bombings. So you had a, a countrywide coordinated suicide bombing strategy. You had already a phantom menace, Sakawi, so and you have um, British agents who were actually caught in the process of um, attempting to uh, blow something up. Mm. So when you add this together, you have to seriously ask where a lot of these uh, bombings actually the work of the intelligence services, the Western intelligence services, uh, designed to uh, further cause chaos in Iraq and further divide communities and also push the country further into uh, political divisions. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Tim, Tim, I just uh, wanted to ask if you knew or if you know the name Captain Can Masters. Sorry, I didn't catch it. If, if you know the name Captain Can Masters, a British officer in Iraq. It doesn't ring a bell. Uh, well, I just came in, in looking at that story of those two SAS operatives who were caught in, who were busted out of the Basra jail. Uh, Captain Ken Masters was not a British officer in Iraq. He his job was ba he was say, stationed in Basra, I think, and his job was to investigate uh, complaints against the British military uh, by Iraqis, uh, and um, I think he was. The the story it was uh, the story was in the newspaper uh, um, uh, not just after he died uh, in I think it was in July or, or just after the it was about two or three weeks after this event where these two British guys were busted out of the jail um, he was found dead um, in his room in his quarters in Basra a couple of weeks afterwards and he was actively uh, working on <clears throat> that incident um, where the two guys were broken out of the jail because the Iraqis, uh, the Iraqi authorities at the time uh, filed a complaint uh, and he was the one who was dealing with it. And I just thought it was very 
it was a bit of a coincidence, I suppose you'd call it, that uh, this guy who had been in Iraq for several years and had dealt with all, all sorts of problems, that uh, the official story goes down that, that uh, things just got too much for him at that point. But it just happened to be the same point uh, where he was looking into uh, what these two uh, SAS guys were doing as a result of the Iraqi complaint. Yes, there seemed to be a lot of uh, suspicious and coincidental deaths. I haven't looked into that specifically, Mm. but uh, I remember the Charlie Hebdo killings uh, in France. Uh Uh, One of the uh, French police, uh, high-level police officers investigating it, uh, supposedly committed suicide. Right, uh, at his desk in Limoges. That is, yes, yes. Uh, Um, Yeah. I mean, that, that brings up an interesting question because what you've just described really um, is effectively that to one extent or another, British covert operatives are playing the role or taking the place of uh, Muslim terrorists and carrying out Muslim, what are, other, what are described as Muslim terror attacks. I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying there seems to be enough evidence here to suggest that there's a policy of carrying out quote-unquote Muslim terror attacks by British or other Western operatives and then blaming it on Muslim groups. And I mean, this obviously makes sense, like talking about what you what you described earlier about uh, British the British policy of going around the world and kind of stealing other people's resources, that would kind of necessitate uh, some kind of a, a justification for going into this country and stealing its resources. And of course, terrorism and Muslim terrorism or the Muslim terror threat uh, provides that justification. But at the same time, you would, you would assume that they would, someone would have to create the reality, quote-unquote, of Muslim terrorism to justify intervention in other countries to combat Muslim terrorism. Now, the key point there may, may be that the, the the key ingredient there is, is the commission of terrorist attacks, and it's possible that this is being carried out by Western operatives themselves. It's a yeah. closed circle. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, we know that... Uh what we call Al-Qaeda was created by MI6 and the CIA as part of Operation Cyclone in the late 1970s, in which about 20,000 Muslims were brought in by the U.S. Navy SEALs, the Green Berets, the British SAS, and trained in America in order to draw the Russians into an Afghan trap, in the words of Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Brzezinski, and uh, the Soviets apparently fell for the trap and invaded Afghanistan and were drawn into a long, brutal war with terrorists that were being armed and trained by the Anglo-American secret services. And uh, these same terrorists um, were later called Al-Qaeda, which according to Britain's uh, now dead uh, foreign secretary. We were talking about coincidental deaths. Well, there was another one, Mm. uh, Robin Cook. Uh, He wrote an article uh, saying that Al-Qaeda simply means the computer file or database Mm -hmm. of um, 
operatives that were being trained by the CIA, and he could have mentioned MI6 as well, um, for this purpose to fight, uh, to, to essentially bleed the Soviets. And uh, within um, a few months of writing that, uh, he was found dead. Uh, he was apparently walking uh, on a hill, uh, hiking, and died of a heart attack when nobody was around. So, um, but anyway, he, th this, uh, so the, what we now call Al-Qaeda were then used uh, to fight in Bosnia uh, and have since spread uh, apparently all over the eastern North Africa. And these are the same regions which the United States uh, is explicit about controlling and dominating. So I'm sure most of your uh, listeners would have read the document Rebuilding America's Defenses written by the uh, neoconservatives which came to power under the George Bush administration which talks about needing a new Pearl Harbor in order to justify this global uh, agenda for uh, world dominance. Uh, in that document which happened before 9-11 which has been used to justify a lot of the wars and conflicts it talks about using drones to project U.S. military power, in their words. It talks about backing out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty with Russia, which it says has prevented the weaponization of space and prevented missile systems. And it talks about other high-tech stuff, like um, developing um, super-enhanced soldiers that take various pharmaceuticals to enhance their capabilities. Uh, well, within a year of this document, uh, we get another one of these dreadful coincidences, 9-11 happening. Uh, suddenly, uh, Al-Qaeda is used, the, the very organization that was created by Britain and America, uh, to justify this takeover, essentially, of the Middle East and North Africa. It's uh, become a demolition job where country after country, the political system, the infrastructure is being destroyed through one or another pretext. Weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, catching bin Laden in Afghanistan, uh, hunting the Taliban with drones in uh, Pakistan, hunting Al-Qaeda in Yemen and in Somalia, uh, humanitarian intervention stopping ISIS now in Iraq and Syria, etc., etc. It all leads to the same outcome, which is total war in that region. And uh, when one system is uh, destroyed, the outcome is going to be... I was talking earlier about the Tamils, that when you oppress a population, uh, a certain sector tends to get pushed further to the right and further into violence and extremism. And so... Uh, in some cases, terrorists are created and led. In other cases, it's provocateurs. In other cases, it's uh, simply stirring the hornet's nest. And in one of the documents uh, that I read by the Ministry of Defense, it talks about using proxies in order to distance the state from war because they know that the general public is not going to tolerate war. So if mm -hmm. we can use proxies like ISIS or like the Free Syria Army or whoever it may be mm -hmm. uh, to cause trouble to fight wars for us, uh, then all the better. But it says these groups, in fact, it states these groups uh, will 
become terrorist organizations, but they might get out of control. So they might start doing things that we haven't approved of. Uh, but um, the, the people designing these policies are perfectly willing to take that chance. Yeah, indeed. And really, there's no bigger cycle than them. So I don't think anyone's really ever gotten away from them. <laughs> I didn't catch that. Okay, sorry. It was just a comment that um, that risk factor, that something they create may get out of control. Yes. It's kind of minimal, I think, or it's mitigated by the fact that no one is as quite as psycho as they are. Oh, I understand. <laughs> yes, yes, um, in fact. Go on. I was just going to say that uh, I think the biggest risk of accident or escalation is to do with uh, nuclear weapons. There's another Ministry of Defense document which talks about pursuing global dominance policy, even with countries that have nuclear weapons like Russia, and this would risk uh, what they call brinksmanship and misunderstanding. And in fact, one of the advisors who was drafting the British national security strategy says, again in um, private, it's not reported in the media, that uh, the threat of terrorism to us in the West is minuscule compared to the potential accident with a nuclear weapon. Right. Um, what about uh, Africa, Al-Shabaab, uh, Kenya, Somalia? Yeah, you wrote about British involvement in Somalia. Can you go into that some more? Yeah, so Somalia is another country where Britain has a colonial history. It mm -hmm. was one of the one of the later colonial conquests. And um, Somalia has had decades of civil war, um, but things were starting to calm down because a government called the Islamic Courts Union uh, came to power in Mogadishu, the capital. And according to various uh, human rights groups like Amnesty, they actually uh, raised the um, social welfare. They were getting children into school. Uh, violence was dissipating. Um, according to the U.S. Congress, uh, despite their name, Islamic Courts Union, they were mostly a socialist organization. They were not extremist. Uh, or very, very few of the members expressed extremist views. Um, but under the pretext of combating Islamic extremism and al-Qaeda in Somalia, uh, the government was overthrown in the late 2006 by uh, an invasion of Somali and Ethiopian warlords that were being trained uh, and armed by Britain with involvement from Kenya and the United States. And uh, this, basically a gang, uh, an armed trained gang, invaded Somalia, battled the Islamic Courts Union. They were called the Transitional Federal Government, just to give them a, a veneer of legitimacy, and um, really reduced the country um, to chaos. 
Uh, one journalist in the UK reported on Britain's involvement in this, and ironically, he was writing for the Daily Mail, which is a right-wing, quite racist newspaper in Britain. Uh, and the I think the Daily Mail allowed him to report on it because they could blame the so-called left-wing Labour government in Britain to say, look at look at how awful Labour are. And uh, he was reporting that the dreadful famine in Somalia, in which uh, literally millions of people were at risk, uh, was caused by the disruption to the social system, not because of climate change. And um, the flow of refugees was horrendous. There were uh, tens of thousands of Somalis, women and children, fleeing this terror of the transitional federal government. And um, they were trying to escape across the Gulf of Aden to Yemen uh, in rickety boats, many of them drowning, some of them being thrown overboard because they couldn't pay fees to people smugglers and so on. Uh, hundreds of thousands ended up in uh, Kenya, many of them in refugee camps where they were being abused and food was withheld and so on. Uh, so this this was a real uh, humanitarian catastrophe. And um, all we heard in the media, well, 99.9% .9 of what we heard in the media was either about Somali pirates harassing mm. European and American ships in Somali waters, uh, or else it was about Al-Shabaab. Now, Al-Shabaab supposedly allied with Al-Qaeda, but what Al-Shabaab, which means the youth, uh, what the youth uh, was, was simply the armed wing of the Islamic Courts Union, the socialist government in Somalia. Um, it did not become an extremist organization until the Islamic Courts Union was destroyed uh, and until it was uh, largely infiltrated by what we call Al-Qaeda. Now, at that point, it was of interest to the media. Suddenly, we had uh, Al-Qaeda in Somalia. So we have justification now for using drones, for using helicopter attacks, uh, for various other covert activities. Well, Tim, um, we've gone for about an hour. Is it cool if we ask a couple more questions? Sure. Okay. Um, well, I just want to make one general comment first about the book. Um, you cover 11 specific countries, and each has its own chapter, and then you've got one, ch one extra chapter on the drone warfare and the multiple countries that that involves. Now, the, the, the thing that I get from this is that um, we were talking earlier about the, the reason that there is so much secrecy and, th and that being the reason that most people don't know what's going on. And the impression I get is that if anyone were to even read one chapter in your book or look at one of these countries and get an idea of what's going on, that would kind of totally <laughs> explode the, um, the secrecy and the kind of totally subvert the, the foreign policy objective, that, objective that, the, that Britain has by just revealing the truth about it. Now, because when you look at any of these individual countries, you see this pattern. Now, sometimes in one specific country, it's just a couple of the elements, but when you look at them all together, like you do in your book, 
and you put all the pictures, all the pieces of the the puzzle together, then you get this really horrifying picture, and that involves um, not only um, supplying weapons and bombs and all kinds of uh, materials that go into warfare to dictators and people who are committing genocide. You get pe- you get the British, in- you get British intelligence and special forces creating and supporting death squads in countries all over the world. You get um, these massacres and atrocities against villagers and human rights activists and just um, just ordinary people who are who are standing up for their own country and for their uh, for their own land against corporate interests. And when you put it all together, it's just it's just horrible. And but w- one of the one of the aspects that um, well, one of the countries that I wasn't as familiar with that you commented on was Colombia. And I think that even if if you just look at Colombia and the the situation that was going on there, that can tell us a lot about what's going on right now in other countries too. For example, like in Syria, and um, the reason I say this is because there's currently this massive disinformation campaign in the news about what's going on in Syria. About um, we have this image of the United States and Great Britain as being these defenders of democracy and fighting Al Qaeda, and those pesky Russians are just getting in the way. And but really, if you look at what's going on, the picture is completely different. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about Colombia and what that what the situation in Colombia says about what Great Britain actually does in the world. Yeah, Colombia is an interesting case because. We are bombarded in the British media, and I'm sure it's the same in the U.S., about the atrocities of ISIS, about torture, beheadings, setting people on fire, drowning them. You can find exactly the same kind of atrocities being committed next door in Saudi Arabia by our allies, and also exactly the same atrocities being committed in Colombia, again by our allies, the paramilitary forces. Colombia uh, has been essentially in in a class war, a real uh, shooting class war for decades with uh, a land-owning elite and a large number of Afro-Colombians who are descendants of slaves uh, and also indigenous people and poor people who are descendants of the Spanish. And um, for decades, people have gradually fought for basic rights, like the right not to have their rivers polluted by giant British corporations, uh, or the right to be able to have uh, an education without being assassinated for being involved in a political group. And uh, the situation in Colombia, Britain's involvement um, that I could find out began in the 1980s because there was supposedly uh, a real uh, drug problem uh, in Colombia, that drugs were getting into Europe and drugs were getting into America. And so the uh, SAS and the Special Boat Service from Britain were sent in to try and help the Colombian military and the paramilitaries. Um, But what I found was happening is that uh, Britain's allies were as much involved in the drug trade as their enemies. Now, the enemies supposedly uh, were the FARC rebels, this kind of what began as a Marxist group and inevitably 
became corrupted and violent. Um, but uh, most of the atrocities that are committed in Colombia are not committed by FARC, although they do commit atrocities. Most of the atrocities are committed by the paramilitaries. Uh, but anyway, both sides uh, essentially get a lot of revenues from cocaine. And uh, what I found is that the British were stopping the cocaine where they could uh, that FARC was running, but facilitating the cocaine that was being run by the paramilitary forces and by the gangs that are related to them. And this situation uh, has gone on for decades to the point where it was even exposed recently in the international media that um, HSBC, which is um, kind of a quasi-British bank, it has mostly connections with Hong Kong now, but uh, HSBC's American branch was actually laundering drug money uh, from Mexican gangs. Uh, some of it was coming from Colombia. So there's a long chain here which involves international bank and it involves uh, national military forces and paramilitary forces. And um, uh, um, wait, do you I want to follow to, up on that question? Yeah, I do. I just want to point out yeah. that specifically the notorious Medellin cartel of Pablo yeah. Escobar that, you know, everyone's aware of in pop culture. Oh, the Colombian cartels. This guy was trained by the British Secret Services. Is that about right? Uh, as far as I can tell, there were close connections. I don't know to what extent the training was. I'd be interested if you have uh, other sources. I'd be interested to see them. But certainly the British were allied with the gang for a long time. Interesting, yeah. They always, it always seems to be part of the pattern globally is you find the worst characters. And if you don't, you know, inadvertently or directly create them, you end up aligning with them. This is a... This is the craziness of it, and yet it's the um, recurring pattern. Whether it's the most extremist religious nutjobs in the Middle East, or the most extreme cartel leaders in South America, they seem to find they seem to like water finding its level. The British state ends up aligned with with the worst of the worst. Um, uh, Elan, you were going to say something else. Well. Um I was curious as to what Tim's feelings were about the um, the Shikult, uh inquiry, the Iraq inquiry. That's uh, the report of which is going to be um, announced on July sixth. Uh, this was a uh, the public investigation into the Britain's involvement in the Iraq War, and uh, it's a funny thing. I'm I'm reading a little bit about it now. It's uh, the supposed public inquiry, uh, but it's headed by Sir John Shukult, Sir Lawrence Friedman, Sir Martin Gilbert, Sir Roderick Lynn, Baroness Prashar, all of these elites, um, you know, sirs and baronesses. Um, in any case, uh, you know, my, my first thought about it is that it's, uh, it's going to resemble something like the 9-11 Truth Commission's um, you know, information uh yeah there were intelligence failures you know we we should have done better but uh so what um in any case Tim, i'm i'm wondering you know what if anything 
can be expected to come out of the report that we're expecting uh, to hear about in, in just a couple of weeks? I really don't waste my time with it because it's the government investigating itself. So what mm -hmm. I found just looking at it uh, in a, a very general way, I found that the questions that are being asked to the politicians and the policymakers and the military tend to be, could we have done more to save British lives? Uh, was the equipment you were given the correct sort of equipment for the mission? Um, th th these are really marginal issues. They, d they don't get to the core questions, such as, was this an illegal war? Well, that question can be answered in five minutes. Of course it was. And um, it doesn't, as far as I can tell, go into a lot of detail about the um, not only the illegality of it, but about the effect that it's had on the civilian population. I mean, estimates vary, but um, about a million people have been slaughtered because of this invasion. The country, uh, even before ISIS came along, uh, the life expectancy had dropped, uh, even to uh, the standard of the sanctions era. Uh, infant mortality had uh, increased. The political system was destroyed. None of this is entering discussion about it. And um, when a British weapons inspector called Dr. David Kelly, uh, again, one of these coincidental deaths, uh, when he supposedly committed suicide uh, after revealing that the government had lied about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, which was the justification for invading Iraq in 2003, uh, the, in the, the inquiry was um, a waste of time. The evidence from uh, specialists in trauma who investigated his death was not taken into account. Uh, it was not conducted uh, under the parliamentary court. It was conducted merely as an inquiry, so uh, nobody had to, uh, nobody would be found culpable of uh, lying, for example. So there's, it's, it's going to be like that. It's just going to be another whitewash. Um. Tim, what's well, your what's your take on um, just slightly off topic, but what's your take on this Brexit Brexit business? On Brexit? Yes. Well, I have to say that surprised me because the policy for Europe has been to um, essentially create uh, a, a global system, an ordered union. And this is partly what the Middle East, the destruction of the Middle East and North Africa is about. Uh, they, the businesses want to create a unified Middle East, like a European Union trading bloc. And in fact, the origins of the European Union uh, not only go back to Nazi, the Nazi era, but uh, the original, uh, the forerunner to the CIA, the um, OSS, they had uh, committees for a united Europe. So this has been a long-term plan to keep Europe united. So the vote to leave uh, surprised me. I would have assumed that it would have been fixed to remain in Europe. But um, from what I've read recently among uh, European uh, policy researchers, there is a group of very powerful hedge fund managers that want Britain to be free of the constraints of Europe. 
uh, they want to bring in more U.S. capital so that London will be even more awash in U.S. capital. They want to further deregulate the city of London. And for this, they, they think that Brexit will be the best solution. So it's possible that the Brexit result has uh, resulted from uh, a neoliberal economic push to get London further away from European regulation. Mm, interesting. Right. Well, yeah, we've been we've been listening to T.J. Coles, author of Britain's Secret Wars: How and Why the United Kingdom Sponsors Conflict Around the World. As I've already said, the book is great. It's short. Um, it's easy to read, and it's just jam-packed full of information on all these conflicts. I learned a ton reading it, um, so I highly recommend it. Right now, it's available on Amazon.co.uk. You can also go to Amazon.com. It says it's available for pre-order, that it hasn't been released in the States yet, but there are um, sellers selling it on the Amazon Marketplace. So you can check it out there. Um, Tim, do you have any information about when the book will be officially available in the U.S.? I'm afraid not, but I can certainly ask my publisher about what's happening there. Well, okay. we're just, well in we're the just, meantime... In our chat room, we've just had some a person, a couple of people already just bought one and said there's only five copies left and get it before it's gone. I don't know about that. that. Might be, <laughs> yeah, that might just be Amazon.co.uk. They just have That's in the UK a certain idea. number in stock before they, before they get the order. Better crank in, up but, the printers, uh, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just I just had a comment for you, Tim. Uh earlier in the show you you mentioned uh, the pathocracy and the the psychopathic uh thinking involved in in Britain's secret wars and um you know reading your book or chapters from your book and listening to you speak I just want to encourage you to continue on that vein because like Neil was saying, you know, it's something uh that we on Sot have been talking about for a very long time. So um, just a word of encouragement from from uh, from this end here about continuing in that vein and, and yeah. letting people know what uh, we're gonna how send these people them, really think. Yeah, we're going to send them a copy of Political Ponderology. So, um. yes, please. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah. Go ahead, Harrison. Great. Well, yeah, so just thanks for being on, Tim. It was great talking to you. Yes. Thank you. And... And Thank more you, power, more power to you, Tim. And uh, you've obviously been doing this for a long time, and it's probably taken a lot of effort, a lot of a lot of energy from you and stuff. And uh, um, I don't know. I think you deserve a you deserve a nice, quiet, peaceful retirement. I think writing books at your leisure. I'm sorry, the lines dropped. I just heard oh, yeah. I. I but I assume it was something positive. What does he deserve? I was just saying that uh, it's, you prob- can you hear me now, Tim? Yeah. Yeah. I was just saying that you've probably you've been doing this for quite a long time, and it's probably taken a lot of effort uh, and a lot of energy. And uh, you know, I mean, it's not exactly the nicest or the easiest thing to have to kind of stick your nose in and keep looking at over and over again and talking and writing about. And I just uh, I was just wishing uh, for you for the future a kind of a at least some peace and relaxation and. Uh, you know, downtime so you can uh, have some fun. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, Tim. All right. Well, thanks again, Tim. Thanks again. We'll talk soon, hopefully.
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, looking All forward right. to it. All right, okay. good luck. Thank you. Have a good evening. And you, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so it's time, Harrison, for... Mm. Do we, we want to do wait. the jingle now? Or do we yes. want to do we want to talk to our jingler? Let's do the jingle and then All talk. right, jingle away. Where is the jingle? Ah, uh, Harrison, I don't come have on. <laughs> I don't have the button. <laughs> you don't? All right. No. Where's your warrant? Show me the warrant. Show me the warrant. We don't need a warrant. Yes, you do. Hey Brent, are you smiling this week? Yeah, I am. It's Pride in New York City today, so I'm very happy. Oh yeah? Alrighty. Well, it has nothing to do with the stories that I have here for you guys, though. It's a it's a pretty gruesome collection oh, of stuff. Oh God! All right, yeah, this is obviously our cop uh, cop roundup, cop shock cop crap roundup. Basically, I wish we didn't have to do it, but we do have to do it. And fair dues to you, Brent, for looking at it and bringing us the the gory, the gory details. So what what do we got? Quite gory. Um, actually, I don't know if you guys heard, but there was like this whole big scandal happening in Oakland, California with the police department there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually kind of like a series of scandals. Um, there's actually this nice little series of tweets that sum it up, and I'll just kind of go down the list. There was a cop who uh, allegedly killed his wife, and fellow officers helped cover him up the crime, uh, trying to like, make it look like a suicide, but the uh, the woman was shot twice, and so naturally her family was curious about how a woman could commit suicide by shooting herself twice. Um, so it came out that you know that was actually a murder, and that it was covered up. Um, that same officer um, was now apparently he committed suicide. As to whether or not that was actually suicide, or you know they killed him, we don't really know. Um, he did, however, uh, leave behind a suicide note that says that him and some of his fellow officers were raping a child trafficking victim. Um, an investigation began that revealed that that was actually happening. Um, after this child trafficking victim turned 18, more cops actually started paying her for sex. Um, and some of this was happening in the parking lot of the uh, Oakland Police Department. Um, the investigation continues. It's alleged that the, the uh, wife knew about the, the, the raping of the child trafficking victim all along. Um, and then that uh, police chief eventually stepped down. Um, you know, they, they didn't, he, he, it was like determined that he was unfit, you know, whether or not, you know, he knew or not, he was just unfit to lead because all this stuff is happening on his watch. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, uh, the mayor, says the police chef, the police chief sit down for personal reasons. Um, and then they went through like two or three more, um, police chiefs in like a week after that, all these people being unfit to lead. And it was just really crazy. There's a really good article over at us uncut that sums up the whole thing. I'm trying to not go through it all because it's just so crazy, but I will paste a link <clears throat> in the, uh, the chat room 
case anybody wants to get into the nitty gritty details of all that. Um, also, uh, recently, uh, just last uh, last week, the Supreme Court ruled in a five to three decision that police have the right to detain anybody without cause and then arrest them on the spot if they have an outstanding warrant. Um, it was quite a big uh, kerfluffle about this because um, basically, if you <clears throat> police can, you know, grab anybody off the street and demand ID from them. Um, and now, you know, if, if they run a background check and there's any sort of ping in their system, the parking um, ticket search you parking ticket, you know, any, anything like, uh, you know, any sort of, you know, ch- uh, child, perhaps childcare payments that went right. overdue. Um, they can search you on the spot and, um, use anything they find on your person, uh, against you in a court of law as reasonable evidence. Um, and it's just a whole new big, big win to the, um, to, to the police state. Uh, what's her name? Uh, justice, uh, Sonia Sotomayor. She was one of the dissenting judges and she wrote a really scathing rebuttal of the, um, of the majority decision. Uh, I could find, there was a really good quote. Um, maybe I'll dig it up later, but yeah, she, she was the, one of the biggest judges and she wrote the, uh, the minority opinion there. And it was, it was really amazing what she said. Uh, here we are. Um, we must not pretend that the countless people who are routinely targeted by police are isolated. They are canaries in the coal mine whose deaths, civil and literal, warn us that no one can breathe into this atmosphere. They are the ones who recognize that unlawful police stops corrode all of our civil liberties and threaten all of our lives. Until their voices matter too, our justice system will continue to be anything but. Um, she really, uh, she really laid into it, and it kind of harkens back to what they were doing here in New York City with the stop and frisk policy. I mean, they they stopped that, um, but. It's it's just like you know we're now we're moving back into that into that direction with this uh, Supreme Court ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Brent, the, um, the the first story that you covered um, with that uh, whole debacle in uh, in Oakland, mm-hmm. um, the the mayor, uh, if I remember correctly, had to um, have the police department be taken over by civilian oversight, and uh, and and her words of disgust of the over the whole situation uh, seemed to echo uh, Sotomayor's. She was like, you know, this is a, this is a, like a sick macho police culture we have here. And and we can't even, we can't even let these people, you know, run the show right now. Um, So it just seems like uh, the, the, something's going to have to happen if at all uh, from, from outside of these uh, police institutions in order to, create any change which seems unlikely yeah it's it's like there's like a really toxic sort of masculinity that's very prevalent especially in the united states um where these men feel that they have to uh assert themselves in using violence uh, against other people and and that's how they define you know masculinity to them is this 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 violent ability to enforce their will on other people and you see it um I have a couple more stories here. There's a Missouri teen who was dead um, eight minutes after cops tased him for 23 seconds. These guys, he got 17 year old. He was actually the son of a police officer. Um, 
He was placed in a medically induced coma, suffered brain damage after a taser was used on him repeatedly in the chest for four times the duration uh, the police are trained to use on somebody. Um, he was pulled over for some sort of uh, traffic violation, and I guess he was giving lip to the officer, and then the officer decided that he was going to you know, pull him out of the car and you know, proceed to actually arrest him. And um, he doesn't want to get out of the car. Cop opens the door, pulls out his taser, points it at the kid, discharges it, and he, he has to pull the trigger multiple times in order to get that duration. Um, and then he drags this kid uh, out of the car and um, drives him, drags him over to the side of the street. The kid is like having like semi-conscious convulsions. And then he just drops him um, onto the ground. His head hits the ground and he gets uh, like a traumatic brain injury. Um, and I think he actually did survive but he was technically dead for eight minutes after, after this whole incident went down. Um, and it just goes to show that, you know, when, you know, I was always told growing up that you're supposed to be, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, officers. And I understand that, but it's like blaming, you know, it's like blaming a girl for wearing a short skirt after she gets raped. You know, you can't, you can't explain to people that, you know, that it's your fault when somebody does this horribly, brutally violent thing to you just because you aren't 100% deferent to their authority. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's another one. Uh, let's see. This one is cop exposed for planting cocaine on woman while filming an episode of Cops. <laughs> it's just, you know, he wanted to be the hero. Um, and, you know, the cameras caught it. And basically, you know, it's just it, it just makes you wonder you know, how many of these drug busts against, you know, young African-American men in the city, you know, how many times are the drugs planted or how many times are they actually there? Like, you just, you just don't know. You get stories like this and it just becomes very, very questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's another one. Worse than Sandusky, school cop whose job was to protect students, repeatedly rapes 22 boys. This is a story out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is one of these, uh, one of these high school cops, you know, the cops they keep in schools. This guy was picking out boys from their classroom, taking them to Janner's closet, and sodomizing them repeatedly. Uh, over the course, let's see, he worked in this high school from like 1990 to 2012 when he was, uh, he was uh, let's see, he got suspended with pay, and then he resigned two months later. So obviously somebody kind of had, had an idea of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, you know, it took 22 years before, you know, he was around children and had access to children. And, you know, they said there's 22 people in this lawsuit that's being spearheaded by one of his former victims. Um, but who knows what the actual number is, you know, anytime you get into these sex abuse cases, you know, usually the, the number of people that come forward is the tip of the iceberg. Mm. What is wrong with people? 22 years? This guy's <clears> around, <throat> I mean, people... People must have known. I mean, that happens so often, you know. I mean, with, in the Catholic Church, obviously, is an, an example. But what is wrong with <laughs> with parents and other people who have children? Even, I mean, most, you know, in particular, because of supposedly their, you know, their supposed mothering or parent, parental instinct. I mean, against children. What is it with people who have even have the slightest suspicion that a child is being abused or traumatized or you know tortured or whatever in any way 
and just kind of look away or just say, oh, no, it was best just, you know, best not to, don't rock the boat. What is, I mean, those people, they're not human beings. That's not a human response, you know. There's something wrong. I, the more I think about it, the more I think we actually live on a planet with where probably a majority of people on the planet that, we li- that, that share this planet with aren't actually humans, you know. In some way or other, they're more like animals, you know, because you wouldn't expect a dog. Well, actually, you wouldn't expect a dog to do it. So animals is the wrong. Um, li- lizards. No, I don't know. Give me a, It's not an animal doesn't even get it, you know, because there's, there's just some instinct that's missing in so many people, you know, where they're just like, oh, you know, best left. That's just best left unsaid. Don't, don't look away. Don't, don't rock the boat. Don't, don't, don't cause trouble. It's okay. You know, what is – I don't get it, you know. I mean, anyway, that's just yeah. my trip. Go ahead. The lawsuit says that not a single teacher reported him or even questioned him. Not a single teacher made an inquiry to the office. You know, it's just nobody ever bothered to think, you know, why are these kids getting taken out of class over and over and over and over again? You know, right, like nobody's suspicious. Oh, he must just be interested. I mean, what's wrong? I don't know. Well, he's got a uniform and a badge. Right, exactly. He must be doing the right thing. And that thing about planting planting drugs on people, that's got to happen probably 50% of the time or more. And it's just, I mean, it's so similar. It just made me think of the stuff we were talking about, talk, talking about with TJ Cole just recently about, you know, the whole war and terror. Like part of the one small kind of aspect or, um, you know, example of the... Uh, of the whole fakery around terrorism, basically, where you have Western powers who are fighting wars and terror, but actually carrying the terror out themselves so they can go and actually fight a war, which is really a war of uh, imperial pillage and plunder. I mean, in that situation, they go into countries, they, uh, you know, they, they shoot a bunch of innocent people, and then they throw a bunch of guns down mm-hmm. and say, look, terrorists, we were shot at. I mean... That's, that's, it seems like a world away, that whole scene, like that, that scene that I just p- painted happening in the Middle East somewhere, in Iraq or, or Syria or somewhere, or Libya, and it seems like a world away from the streets of uh, New York or the streets of some town in the US, but it's not. The dynamic there is exactly the same, where you have an yeah. authority victimizing a, a, a civilian, an innocent civilian, and then not only victimizing them, but then... Uh, incriminating them, you know, and basically uh, unfairly... Blaming the victim. Yeah, blaming... Yeah, making a victim and then blaming them and setting them up for jail time and stuff just so they can, what, feel good about themselves, feel more authoritarian, justify their jobs, basically, justify what they're doing, which is being an authority. It's all about justification for authority over ordinary people. Anyway, carry on. It's, it's, It's ridiculous. I mean, we just... You see it again and again and people just kind of shrug their shoulders at it. Um, there's a video here of a cop allowing his canine to maul a man for several minutes over riding a bike with no light. <laughs> it's just like, what? And this comes out of Florida, which, I mean, Florida has... Florida comes up again and again in these stories. I don't know what they're, what's in the water down there, what they're doing mm. to the people down there. But the cops down there, I, I read terrible stories about them so often. Mm. Um and then this story talks about um, how more and more schools are getting rid of guidance counselors and hiring police officers. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> instead of having you know people that are trained in you know child psychology and helping kids get through you know yeah. get through that awkward teenage years, 
um, and make good choices. They're just opting to have enforcers with tasers and guns, yeah. you know, patrol the things. And, you know, so, if a student gets a little uppity, you know, we're just going to tase them. We're just going to beat them. We'll arrest yeah. them. No problem. So child, like, child- well, it's, it's so symbolic of this kind of prison culture we live in because, uh, I, I mean, how much, how much more of a, of an example do you need of how the U S is in this kind of lockdown? Um, you know, instead of providing these supportive nurturing services, uh, we're, we're being, you know, kind of yeah. smacked down for, for, uh, right. for misbehavior instead of being treated for it. Yeah. It's like yeah. child guidance, child guidance counselors being replaced with police, co- police officers. It's like a kid comes and says, comes to speak to the guidance counselor and got some problems at school. What'll it do? We got some problems with someone at school, you know, a classmate or something or whatever. You will respect my authority or I will tase you. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. That's sort of my problem. I'll just shut the hell up and not ask any more questions. Yeah. Yeah, the article goes on to say that uh, 1.6 million students attended a school that employs a law law enforcement officer but has no guidance counselor. It's just unbelievable. There was this report that uh, Civil Rights Data, a collection – is a it's a group and they put this this poll together to do the they did the research and published it in the Washington Post, um, and it's just unbelievable how many times that um, schools called cops. There was a previous report from a Free Thought Project where the U.S. Department of Education um, released some statistics, and, and this is from 2011 to 2012. So you know, this was years ago, so you can imagine it's gotten worse, but. Um, Teachers in the state of California alone called the cops a total of 31,961 times, leading to 6,341 arrests, which means in a 175 uh, eight-hour-long school days that a cop was called every 2.6 seconds, and that's just in California. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. and I mean, I, uh, you know, my boyfriend, he's a substitute teacher and, you know, I, I hear about some of the stories and, you know, it's hard to deal with kids sometimes. Um, but it's, it's just clear that, you know, teachers and, and police, they're both not really equipped properly to deal with students if they have, you know, severe emotional, uh, severe emotional disruption. Right. If there's a problem in the home or, you know, the kid has some sort of, you know, uh, mental disorder. Or they're on drugs. I mean, as in the wrong drugs. prescription drugs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it, they're just not equipped, and it's it's really it's really sad that you know we're supposed to be the greatest country in the world, and and we can't even educate our students without having you know armed police patrol the hallways. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's another story here: innocent father of three in critical condition after cops responded to the wrong home and shot him. And this was in uh, Stockbridge, Georgia. Mm. Um, responding to a 911 call, Henry County police arrived at the wrong house on Wednesday and shot an innocent homeowner in the neck. <laughs> wow. And then left saying, sorry about that. Um, carry on. Yeah. yeah this is, story. No, they don't. They, they usually, you know, explain it away. Um, and, and this phenomenon of police responding and going to the wrong home and injuring somebody, it happens all the time. Like, you think, like, I mean, don't you guys have, like, Google Maps or something? Like, I can find my way, you right. know, I I can travel, in, you know, between states, you know, go on, like, a seven-hour drive, get point-to-point, and show up at the right house. 
Like you're telling me you're, you're, this is your local jurisdiction. You're supposed to be from there. And you, you guys, I guess in the heat of the moment, like you go to the wrong house. Like I just, I just don't understand. Yeah. Cause I don't all, understand. They're all hopped up on steroids. Probably their brains aren't working properly. They can't read the numbers in the houses. Yeah, it could be a lot of that. Uh, there was another story I read about cops being uh, found on steroids, but that, that was, it's just, it's just unbelievable. There's another story here. This is from uh, McAllen, Texas. Cop rapes woman in jail. When supervisors see the video, they threaten to kill her and offer her a taco. It's just like <laughs> unbelievable. This woman, this is a story originally from May of 2014. Um, this woman was picked up by uh, La Jolla police officers for misdemeanor probation violation and booked into the La Jolla City Jail um, when officers were out, uh, while other officers were out on patrol. Uh, Felipe Santiago Perales, Perales entered her cell and conducted a, quote, all-night invasion of her body, according to court documents. Um, after getting out, she sues the city and its former police chief, its administrator, a bunch of officers. Um, it's I, I don't even know if I want to read these details, but it's a 38-page complaint. Um, she was crying in pain throughout all of this. Um she says she told two female police officers about the rape and um, other officers apparently had video footage of it, um, but each one refused to take her to the emergency room for an examination, um, which is actually Texas law. You know, if somebody alleges rape that, you know, the police are supposed to immediately take them to an emergency room to collect evidence and stuff. Um yeah, and then it says uh, another lieutenant reviewed the video, questioned the plaintiff about the incident, uh, got her statement, offered her a taco, declined her request for medical attention, um, and then released her to another officer without you know, offering her any medical attention or counseling. It's just unbelievable. Later, she said that she was, uh, her life was threatened if she you know, reviewed, if she, just, she did, wanted to talk about it to anybody else. Um, she said that the lieutenant advised her that she should forget all about it and go on with her life because people come up missing all the time in the valley. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and that, these are the people that are supposed that to be protecting think, us. That guy thinks he's in, a, he's in a Hollywood movie or something. Uh, wow. They, they, uh, they basically created the well, the things they create all around the world. In, in double quick time by expressly training them to be death squads. I was just thinking the U.S. has ended up creating it inadvertently probably for the most part. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, natural, the culture, it's a natural culmination. There are now the same death squads. Right. That's not just, quite as, I mean, they're not killing tens and thousands no, just yet, but it's but going the, there. The same attitude has infused somehow the attitude that that, that uh, policy of the the Western elite and creating death death squads around the world and invading countries and stuff, victimizing people. Somehow that has just that attitude that you know they've pursued it for so long that it's somehow just infusing into the fabric of life in the U.S. You know, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the fabric and the fabric of societies, particularly in in authorities. You know, uh, the, amongst authorities like uh, the police or whatever. You know, uh, they're just I don't know, it's infected them or something. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to mention, you know, I, I had a high school chum, a good friend of mine, who uh pretty sensitive guy, wrote poetry, uh, you know, creative 
fellow, um, showed noble traits uh, in, in various ways, you know, uh, very caring guy, uh, became part of NYPD. This was in the mid-90s. And, uh, you know, after a few years, you know, we saw less and less of each other. Um, but it was so clear to me uh, that this, uh, that this uh, police culture uh, had, had done something to him. Because his attitudes and his, uh, it's, like his it's like his mind shut down. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I got to see this to some degree uh, in a very kind of personal way um, with this friend of mine who, uh, who became NYPD. Um, and I can only imagine that, that this, uh, this mentality, this killer authoritarian mentality has just been ramped up everywhere. Mm. And uh, it's just really sad. Well, it reminded me, when I was reading Tim's book, Britain's Secret Wars, over the last week, he talks about how the British special forces and intelligence and just military in general go over to other countries. And I think the, specifically it was Papua New Guinea, the Indo- Indonesian police. And he describes the the amount of training and support that the the British police give them, and then he describes of, about what the Indonesian police do, and he basically described the U.S. police. He says they regularly rape, torture, um, and he wasn't even talking about like extrajudicial killings or anything like that, but just just the amount of of people that of women who get raped, people who get re- arrested for no reason, and it, it, I, I was just reading that thinking, well, there's. There's no difference. Like the the, the British, the British are training these other police squads in these countries that we think of as maybe third world, but it's the exact same dynamic in the U.S. And so when we think about like the corrupt police in all those other countries, well, U.S. is probably the worst. Well, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it varies from location to location, but generally, we see I see these stories popping up, you know, all over the U.S. Um, with with scary regularity. I mean, it's pretty much a, every day. You know, I check my feed, I check a couple websites, and then I'll put one of these stories aside in my folder and save it for for when we do the roundup. Um, and it's just it's amazing how often this stuff happens, and a lot of people kind of just you know shrug their shoulders and you know oh well you know they they deserved it. Or, well, there's a lot of victim blaming, which really blows my mind, and it, it kind of comes back to um, you know, the way that I've seen it recently is that, you know, our country goes abroad and does all this terrorizing of innocent people abroad. Well, it, it's just almost like karmatically normal that that, that that phenomenon will come back to revisit the populace mm. if we don't, you know, speak out against it. And if we're not, you know, doing all that we can to kind of stop it or at least, you know, to mm-hmm. know about it. Mm-hmm. Um so it's just, it's really, it's really something. There's another story here from Madison, Wisconsin. You know, this is middle of nowhere, you know, U.S., um, where uh, police um, grabbed this black girl who was in a mall. Um, I'm not really sure what her, her crime was, but they there's a video where they carry her out of the mall. Um, and, you know, she's she's upset, you know, and, and she's loud and, and it's kind of screaming. And they're just kind of, one cop is just kind of holding her. And then as soon as backup arrives, this guy gets out of the car, trudges right over to her, grabs her, tries to trip her onto the ground. She's kind of like trying to stay standing up once. And then they start punching her, punching her, beating her. Um, 
holding her down on the ground. Uh, she's screaming, I can't breathe. Um, you know, like apparently she was, maybe she was, she might've tried to spit and because she tried to spit at people, they put this sort of like spit guard slash bag over her head. So they basically like bagged and tagged her. Um, this article, mm-hmm. I mean, this video even comes with a trigger warning. It's so disturbing. Mm. And I'll post a link into the chat room in case people want to take a look. Um, but yeah, she's basically an 18 year old girl, um, outside of a mall. And, um, you know, in the video you can watch and she's, she's kind of struggling. And as soon as the backup officer shows up, they just, you know, he, he knees her in the ribs and then punches her a bunch. Um, they bust out a taser. Um, and it's just, it's really disturbing. Like, this is like a little girl. I mean, I mean, she's 18, whatever, but like, you know, how many cops does it take to, to subdue one, one little girl? I mean, and, and was this really unnecessary? Like, why is she, you know, why is she suffering all this, all this violence? You know, like, it's not like she fucking killed somebody. She didn't pull out a gun. You know, she's not crazy. Um, it's just, it's just unreal. And then there's another story. Um, this was from Michigan. Uh, his, this, this family had recently purchased a property and they wanted to do some experimenting with off the grid living. So they decided, you know, they were going to camp out for, you know, maybe the summer or, you know, a couple of, a couple of weeks in the summer. Um, but you know, somebody apparently tipped off the local police that, you know, there's family living with a bunch of kids out in the woods. Uh, you need to go check this out. Um, and they showed up and they basically took all the kids away. There's six children, um, that they pulled away and, you know, they were able to kind of prove that, you know, we own the land. We're just experimenting while off the grid living, you know, all the kids are well cared for. They had all the, the facilities that they needed, but I guess because there wasn't running water and, uh, they said there wasn't electricity, but the family did have a generator. Mm. Um, they removed the children, uh, from, from the custody of the parents. Uh, luckily they got their kids back, um, not too long after it, but, um, it's just really crazy. This is the children here, age seven months, two years old, four years old, six years old, 15 and 17 have been living in three tents. Um, and they, and there's a quote, our family decided to go camping for the summer to a 10 acre property. We were buying, uh, we had intended to stay the summer while finalizing the plans. Um, right. So can't say we would stay the whole summer due to the fact that one of the uh, the husband was donating a kidney to his mother, and they could be called at any time to do the surgery. Um, and if that was going to happen, they were immediately going to move back into the, into their home. Um, they just wanted to you know have an outdoor experience with the but kids. They went on an extended had, camping trip. Yeah, basically. and they they got some chickens, they got a turkey, some ducks, and they were gonna try, you know, you know, like raising the animals and butchering themselves, you know, try just like get back to earth kind of thing. Um, and uh, you know, they they weren't uh, they weren't even at it for like two weeks before the police showed up with a CPS representative hmm. and took the kids away. For let's see, the family was not in a quote stable living environment. The family had no electricity or water source. Yeah, no shit. Uh, we're camping. <laughs> the children were playing in the woods cared for by a 15 year old. Um, the youngest child had a diaper rash. Um, and the 17 year old girl had cerebral palsy and was reportedly cold. Um, so they, they took all the kids away, but thankfully they, they got their kids back. Um, 
Yeah, and they were out of care of the family for for 21 days because they were camping. It's just you got to. Well, viper I mean, rash is a very serious offense. Very serious. I mean, you, you know, you can get that anywhere. It can it can turn up in the home too. So right. best best use that as evidence that the kids aren't being taken care of. Yeah, it's just unreal. Um, and that's that's the end of my stories for today. All right. Well, thanks for that, uh, Brent. It's always kind of. Uh, Shocking and horrifying to hear what's going on. It just doesn't seem to be getting any better. But um, it's you know, it's the one area. I mean, the the authorities, the the front line, the, the coal face of the authorities, which is the police uh, forces, your friendly neighborhood police officer and stuff, is the direct interface uh, between the ordinary people in the street and um, i.e. anybody listening to the show and. Uh, and the pathocracy, essentially. So it's important for people to know the attitudes and, and the behaviors of that of that front line, of that interface between you and your authorities and what they're doing, what their attitude towards you is. That's extremely important because it may uh, save your life one day. Yeah, it's, it's, and any one of these stories taken in isolation is, oh, you know, that's terrible. But when you really step back and look at the big picture, it, it becomes like, it's just, oh my God, like these are, these are the police. They're supposed to protect us. And you see these stories again and again and again. And you're like, yeah. what is happening to my country? It's just unreal. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, uh, thanks, Brandon. We'll, uh, we'll hear from you next week again. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Have a good evening. Thanks, Cheers, Brent. Brent. Take care, buddy. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. All right, Harrison, Alan, give an account right. of yourselves. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up the show for today. I think so, too. <laughs> I reckon. Yep. yep. Yeah, thanks to uh, TJ Coles. Um, very interesting guest. Wrote a really good book, as we mentioned already, Britain's Secret Wars. Check it out. Easy, short book, easy to read, short, but packed with really very important information that will explain what's going on in the, in, in the world to you. Um, okay, hang on a minute. We've got a late call. Yeah. Uh, who have we got in the line? Uh, g'day, Joe. It's Ryan from Australia. Hey, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. G'day. Hello. You nearly missed yeah. it. You nearly missed us. We're about to knock off. <laughs> it was a really interesting interview. Uh, yeah, it was I was paying a lot of attention to it. Only a little bit. Um, I just just had um, oh, a, a lot. Okay, <laughs> all right, that's better. That's I've better. Got a few, <laughs> I've got a few notes that I wrote down. Good stuff. Uh, just wondering uh, what uh, some other listeners uh, might be interested as well um, to know what you guys just maybe quickly think of the whole Brexit thing that happened uh, during the week. Yeah, we asked we asked TJ about that. Uh, don't ask me because I don't know anything. Don't ask Neil. Neil wrote an article <laughs> on it there during the week, and it all went a bit pear shaped. Uh, but um, oh, I'm surprised. You're surprised, what? I'm, su- I'm surprised. I was surprised as well, Niall. I, um, yeah, I sort of tended to agree with what you with, with what you wrote, and yeah, um, and yeah, very surprised. Yeah. yeah. The, our guest said the same thing. He expected, if if anything, they would have to rig it the other way. They didn't, so it's a big question why. Um, 
Joe, you wanted to suggest something. I like I liked our guest's answer. Tim Tim's answer is right. probably up there in the ballpark. Some kind of clique high up there in the food chain would like to deepen Britain's already existing role as a kind of offshore banking center or clearing center for the world financial elite. Yeah. And they figured being out of the EU was better because they can deregulate further and do murkier stuff more of the time to more evil. Mm. Something like that. Yeah. They, they, they feel too constrained by being part of uh, some kind of EU uh, you know, consortium, basically, uh, that has maybe has slightly different uh, goals or isn't quite as psychopathic, maybe, or isn't quite as just off the rails as the London banker types and the Anglo-American types are. And, uh, you know, there's, there, it's maybe evidence of a, of a, of a moving away uh, or a split uh, between, at least in, in terms of between the, the British and American on, on one side, Americans on one side, and some Euro, European, French, Franco-German, French-German interests um, who are grumbling increasingly a little, you know, about uh, this whole Russian sanction business and the, the hysterical U.S. drive backed up by their poodles in, in London uh, to isolate Russia at whatever cost, i.e. also at the cost of screwing over business interests of Germany, France, Italy, and other European nations. It's uh, NATO slash the USA. You know, John Kerry saying, listen, guys, take one for the team here. We hate Russia. We need you to hate Russia as well. You should basically take one for the team here and not do A, B, C, D, and E contracts with Russia because we hate them and we want you to hate them as well. And sure, you know, it's going to hurt you financially or whatever. You're just going to have to suck it up because, you know, America... Uh, USA, USA, uh, we rule, we rule everything, and um, we want you to be the good, compliant, vassal EU state that we have shaped you to be. And so that kind of attitude from Washington is not really flying, at least with some people within Europe and possibly within the EU kind of central powers type thing. And um, so it's possible that's happening behind the scenes or that they're feeling a change in the in, in that towards that direction by the European powers and um so this is their response it's to kind of say well we can um we can get our friends in london england to uh to wreck your little eu party right there you know we can uh, and throw the cat among the pigeons. We can have them leave. Then what are you going to do with your fancy European Union? It's all going to fall apart because then we're going to talk about contagion spreading to other European countries. Are they going to want to leave? What about after a Brexit? What about a Frexit? Well, not French. What about a Spexit? What about a Nexit? Nexit. What about a Bexit? Huh? huh? And after that, <laughs> what do you think about a Oxit? What's that? Austria. An Austria. And how would, what would an Italian exit be? Jesus. <laughs> an exit. It takes it. It takes it. It takes it. It takes it. They're already talking. Yeah. Yeah. They're already talking about um, Oz exit uh, a bit on Twitter. The Australian Republican movement seems to have gathered a, a bit of steam from oh, yeah. this. Uh, Where's Australia uh, going to leave? The South Pacific? Uh, the, the Commonwealth. 
Oh, the Commonwealth. Okay. You guys had a referendum in the nineties. Was that rigged? Because it was very close, wasn't it? Uh, it was. It was rigged in the sense that uh, the option that they put forward um, to have a non-directly elected, uh, elected president. Um, was not what people wanted. People wanted to be able to directly elect the president, uh-huh. as in the United, as in the United States's model. But that, I think, was the deciding factor as to why most people ended up voting against it. Um, if if they'd had the direct directly elected president model, it probably would have gotten through. I but see. Uh, yeah, because because of that, I think that was the deciding factor. Mm-hmm. And so now people are talking again about. Another one. Well, there's Australia, and then more directly for London, the Scots, they all, all of their electoral districts yeah. vote to remain in the EU. Yeah. And they're talking about having another yeah, referendum. Yeah. An independence referendum. Yeah, three million people signed a petition in two days to have another referendum. Oh, I didn't mean it. I, was only, I only did it as... That's what a lot of people in the UK... I mean, all the stuff's coming out. Where, where lots of... I don't know what percentage, but it seems there's a large number of British citizens who voted to uh, leave. Did it only for a bit of fun, just for the crack, just for a bit of a laugh. Because <laughs> they don't like the government and the government wants to stay, so I'm going to say no. Yeah, boo sucks to you. And then we'll see what happens. It's all a bit of fun anyway. And then the next day they're like, oh, well, no, you weren't, you weren't serious. Were you? I thought it was just a joke. I thought we were just having a vote for a laugh. <laughs> What do you mean we're leaving Europe? No, have no. Ah, crap! Why didn't someone tell me this was real? A lot of people are apparently. That's a lot of people's uh, position right now. Where they, uh, where where they made a mistake, basically. I don't know if I know that. Well, there are there's people on on camera who have said that. (laughs) Really, on on camera, have actually said it. I just did it as a protest vote. I didn't think it was serious. Oh wow. Do you think that percentage might possibly be getting like that percentage might be getting played up at all by the media? Like, I don't know, but there's three million people signed a petition in two days to have a have a vote again. Well, but that three petition million. anyone anyone can sign it. Anyone like, can it sign it. Doesn't matter it, yeah. what country. Yeah. So you can have people from like the U.S. signing it. Germany no, no, no. You have to have a British. You have to have. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, unless you can make up a postcode, but it's, you have to put in your postcode and. Oh, okay, because you know? well, I was reading Your name, address, Moon of, Alabama. Moon of Alabama had an article up and where he was talking about that, and he said he signed it, and he's in Germany. Oh yeah, a German in Germany. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's oh. just easy to fake, but it takes a little bit of effort. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, you, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, do you Ryan. think? Do you think? Do you think there's possibly any chance that um, MI5 somehow like mucked it up in some sense like instead of like instead of being like correctly rigging the referendum like in Scotland they they somehow um like they, they just they <laughs> incorrectly it's they brought um, the wrong box of ballots yeah not likely yeah, they, they, not no likely. i don't i don't think so they can keep wars their involvement in wars they start and fund secret for 20 years to the point where only two journalists, one of whom we interviewed today, even knows about it. I'm talking about Sri Lanka in specific here, which uh, until very recently, it's an ongoing civil war conflict, and nobody knows it's the British hand behind it. They can do that over there in India, 
And yeah, I think I don't. And they're not going to make mistakes like that. No, no way. It does seem unlikely, doesn't it? No, but I think I think when you look at that, I mean everything, almost everything that happens, uh, particularly in Europe and uh, well, in, in other places around the world, but Europe and the Middle East and that kind of stuff, over the past ten or fifteen years, is all about Russia. Uh, we've written about this repeatedly that this is all about America's hysterical hatred for Russia and fear for, fear that Russia and Europe would unite. Uh, I mean, the, the, I think the founder of NATO, I think it was the founder of NATO, was it? Uh, or some luminary or whatever, said basically that uh, their fear all along has been, and this is going back 60, 70 years, their fear all along has been uh, a union, a close collaboration between Russia, or the Soviet Union at the time, but Russia today, and Germany in particular. If Germany and Russia became best buddies, then mm. it will be serious problems for U.S. influence in <clears throat> not just Europe, but in many other places around the world. And they want to make sure there's a wedge driven between Europe and Russia forever. And uh, so when you know that that is boiling away in the background and has been for many years and will continue to be, then you put uh, events like this Brexit, you, put, you know, put them in that context and see if you can figure out a, a, a reason why that happened in that context. How does it help the driving of the ways between uh, Russia and and Europe? Uh, if if, if that was the case, though, no, go, go ahead, Ryan. Sorry. Well, I just wanted to say what, what's remarkable to me is how Russia even gets drawn into the conversation at all. You know, uh, they're, they're kind of uh, blamed for it in a way. And, and Putin's right. kind, you know, Putin has to actually come out and say, we're just observing. We, we didn't have any influence, nor did we want to have any influence over the, right. the Brexit. But don't you think it's really uh, super psychopathic and uh, it's, it takes the psychopathic trait of blaming uh, others for what you were doing yourself to an almost to a new level where they will they may have let's say assume they organized this brexit as a way ultimately to increase uh, or or that it's part of their campaign of isolation of russia and they organize this brexit for that specific purpose and as part of their propaganda around organizing the brexit they blame <laughs> russia for organizing the brexit it's like they. I don't know. It's like it's like well, they punch well, Russia I mean, in the face, the and then one, and look, then they blame Russia for punching itself in the face, and say, "Look at Russia, stupid Russia, is punching itself in the face," when they are the ones who punch it in the face. The, the, the <laughs> thing I wonder about that, um, though, is just why Obama sort of like did the whole kind of, um, oh, you know, Brexit would be just terrible. You know, don't Brexit, don't Brexit. I mean, if, if that was their plan all along, it wouldn't have. Wouldn't Obama have sort of perhaps had a more had more moderate statements to say about Brexit, and then they just would have gone and done it in the background anyway? Like, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of divisions in in Washington as well, and I think to a large extent, the White House and Obama don't really know what's going on, and don't really they're really, you know, I mean, they don't really have a lot of say or influence mm. or power in terms of what goes on uh, at the level of real political. You know, uh, manipulations and stuff. You know, um, I mean, they're so they were surprised as well. Surprised and um, I possibly don't even like it. You know, because they had a different agenda. You know, I mean, it's very difficult to pin down. You know, 
like, you look at people, somebody like John Kerry, Secretary of State, running around, going to Moscow repeatedly over and over again, saying all sorts of nice things about, uh, on the one, you know, one day saying, yeah, let's uh, team up with Russia and get ISIS, and then the next day say, no, Russia's uh, bombing the wrong people, they're not bombing ISIS, they're only helping us out. You know, just contradictory statements coming out all the time that suggest that there's a lot of chaos going on behind the scenes in this, you know, policy-making circles, deep, dark policy-making circles, or there's battles between certain groups or whatever. There's, you know, different uh, interests there, and they're not all on the same page. And some of them, you know, poor Kerry's being told by one group of his, basically his masters, to go and say this, and the next day, another group of his masters calls him in and, and drags him over the coals and say, what did you say that for? Tomorrow you go out and say the exact opposite. And he has to go out and say the exact opposite, you know. And he's like, yeah, okay. And he just looks like an idiot, you know, and nobody can make any sense of what he's doing or saying whatsoever. And it's the same for a lot of these overt politicians, you know, who are just, you know, aren't really part of the in crowd, if you know what I mean, but would love to be and are willing just to pay their dues or serve their time as effectively as messenger boys for the real power brokers, you know, public messenger boys, uh, and in the hope that one day they'll get to know the real super secret dark deal of what's going on and how I can get my hands on it. You know, the pathetic people, really. I think uh, I think Tim needs to rewrite the Blame Canada song in South Park to Blame Russia. Right. I think we have to replace the lyrics and uh, and do a Blame Russia. Yeah. Blame <laughs> Russia. <laughs> Absolutely. The but anyway, to be made. sounds like a good idea. On the Brexit thing, I'm going up. I'm I'm part of a volunteer. Um, organization that uh, is recruiting people to starting uh, tomorrow actually on Monday <laughs> we're, we're going up with shovels and spades and we're filling in the channel tunnel <laughs> <laughs> so because I mean you know the public have voted so fair enough you know just going to close the door <laughs> oh, that sounds like a great idea yeah I, I'm going to organize lot, as many people as I can and I, have I would love a couple of weeks just fill it in. No, actually, no. That's probably just yeah. That's a little bit over the top. Cement, cement it up. No, well, look. I'm all about democracy. They voted. That's what they want. Isolation. Out of Europe. Well, first thing to do is block up any gaps. There's a big one there called the Channel Tunnel. Just block it up, and then the Channel Chaps. Yeah, and then we'll do we'll go back to the old the old way of just you know you have to get a visa and you know. Papers, please, at the border. No, you can't come in. <laughs> don't like the look of your... Yeah, this, don't like the, your hairdo. Anyway, what? It's, there's there's definite drawbacks to it, isn't there? The the, the whole Brexit thing. It's, it's sort of that, you know, in one sense, it's really... Uh, like, I, I don't know why, but I get the feeling that it's some kind of, like, sort of victory for democracy or humankind like in some way like in right. some way it was it was actually a good thing like i'm not sure maybe i'm being naive but i just get i get that feeling yeah that it was a flipping the bird to the powers of be type of thing but at the same time it's not a good thing because i think a lot of people a lot a lot of people a lot of english people a lot of people on uh, in the uk um, and, and in Ireland, because Northern Ireland is, is implicated, feel, have identified over the course of, you know, I mean, a lot of them are young, relatively young and have lived, grown up and lived as part of 
and seen themselves as being kind of European and having access to Europe and being able to travel. I mean, it has done a lot in that sense where uh, since uh, the EU and a lot more countries were involved, it has made all of those countries a lot more accessible to the citizens of all all the other countries. And there's a lot lot of uh, exchange and moving back and forward and people buying houses and having, you know, a holiday home in this country or whatever or going there and lots lots of education, government education programs, you know, uh, European-funded programs where students from one university and one side of Europe can go and spend a year in another university. A lot of exchange in that respect. And particularly younger people have grown up with that idea, that identity of being European. And uh, to now suddenly, even if it's just symbolic, symbolically it has an effect on people where they feel like they've been kind of uh, figuratively or emotionally or whatever cut out of a group or a group identity that, that they had until now. So it's quite shocking to people. And I think it's, if, there was, if it was a legitimate vote, then it's the older generation who are all the older Little Englanders type thing. And, you know, back in the old days, you know, uh, we won the war and... Uh, um, <laughs> whatever uh, mm-hmm. English traditions mm-hmm. they have basically who are harking back to the good old days in the 60s when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and everybody loved us and you know free love or something and uh, it was all about England and pork pies and help me out here Neil crumpets crumpets <laughs> crumpets and whatever anyway Guinness no, Guinness what, that's Irish what are you talking about uh, so there was um there was an interesting um, tweet too today on Twitter about uh, I think it was a Russian guy who said that um, the older generation sort of went through the world wars and they sort of know they had that experience of how bad things can get and so maybe that was part of what kind of like drove their thinking or or um, they they like they they could somehow sense where the country was going in some direction and so that maybe subconsciously drove their thinking. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Influenced it. Yeah, maybe. But definitely, I think the younger population aren't happy about it, and they all voted to remain, you know. And um, it's strange. It's interesting to think that it was an actual legitimate vote, you know. Yeah, the map was interesting. It was right. Basically, England voted to leave, and all the others, maybe Wales too, the other countries voted overwhelmingly to remain. Hmm. Yeah, but that that's an argument then for uh, division of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Which would be a massive, sh- like shooting yourself in the feet. I mean, that's the worst. And th- and they were told long in advance. The Scottish Scottish nationals have been saying for a year before this vote, listen, uh, we'll be leaving. If, if you leave. <laughs> worst day in Europe. So if you want to go, fine. But keep in mind the likely risk. Yeah. So they did it. Assuming that they did it, they did it consciously in a way, in awareness that it's going to give them a problem over Scotland. Yeah, the Scots were like, uh, seriously, don't leave me in this room alone with these people. <laughs> you know, with with the English, like, don't leave me on this island. Mm. Don't leave me alone on this island with these people. That's what the, that's mm. the Scottish, a lot of Scottish people's perspective, you know, because there's a lot of historical, yeah, uh, good natured animosity. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. We'll see. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens. You know, I mean, it, there could be other, you know, aspects to it or repercussions, or all could be just. Uh, I mean, they're talking about ten years. Some people are saying ten years before it actually happens. So I don't know what the point is. 
maybe they're just bored, you know. When they, it was a slow news day, and somebody said, "Let's have a Brexit," you know, and uh, they needed to entertain people with some some nonsense, you know. I mean, it doesn't really change much anyway. Even if it, even uh, I mean, I don't think it was that bad, but but yeah, I, I do see your point in that it doesn't change probably some of the larger things that are going on, sort of like with the environment and earth changes and right. that sort of thing. And the fact that so, there's a Pathocracy at the top isn't going to change. I mean, the, you know, I mean that a large part of the global pathocracy is located in the city of London. So them distancing themselves from Europe doesn't really change much, unless you know there is a real division there. Unless Europe were to all of a sudden, the rest of Europe all of a sudden, en masse looked eastwards and decided to go full steam ahead with a the Eurasian bloc and oppose in every way the Anglo-American, i.e. the UK and Yeah, there can't be any half America. measures with the pathocracy. It's got to be all or nothing. So, uh, or they will always find some way to win. The, the referendum I want to see next is that they are given the choice of relocating to the moon. So come back to me when something like that happens. Yeah. And then I'll know something serious is up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. Uh, all right, all right, guys. Um, yeah, thanks very much for your comments. Uh, really enjoyed the show. I'll, I'll definitely uh, be uh, getting that book. I think. Yeah. Uh, TJ Cole's book. Um, yeah. So yeah, thanks, Tim. You know, if you're listening for uh, for the interview, um, really interesting. And uh, yeah, thanks, guys, for hosting the show. And, okay, um, Ryan. Thanks Have for calling one. in. We'll talk to you again. Thanks, Cheers. Ryan. Yeah, mate. Nice yeah. You. Good Bye. eye, mate. But take it easy, boy. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Um, yes, so as we were saying there before we started talking to Ryan, um, thanks to Tim, and check out his book, Britain's Secret Wars. It's, it's actually anybody who has never read a book on the kind of stuff that we have been talking about and sought quite a lot for the past 13 years. If anybody... Anybody listening who has is, has been aware of that, but you never really liked the whole political angle and stuff, and you know the war and terrorism business. If you never really were that much into it, referred to other categories, and therefore you never really bought a book or never read anything, you know, read up on it in any particular way. Well, uh, this might be an opportunity to do so, but in a way that makes it very easy. It's a relatively short book, uh, very written in very accessible language, easy to read, easy to digest, broken up into small chunks. And it's also very interesting. Uh, it'll keep you entertained and it won't take you very long to read it. And you'll get a good overview, you know, the main points of uh, what's going on, what has been going on in the world for a long time, how the West kind of uh, maintains its supremacy and how it also fuels and generates the whole war on terror so that it can continue to justify going around the world, invading other countries and stealing the resources to fight the war on terror which is made up of terrorists and terrorism that the, the West itself actually creates. So if you want to know some specific details about how that is all true, then uh, you can find it in Tim's book, Britain's Secret Wars. Uh, yes. So, um, yes, so thanks to, again, thanks to Tim, thanks to Ryan for calling in, thanks to our chatters and our listeners, of course. We, and thanks to Neil and Harrison, and Alan. We and will, Brent. And, and Brent, Joe. of course. And, and thanks to Joe. Aye, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back 
next week, I suppose. I suppose. We always say, well, we always say that, don't we? Uh, <laughs> it always happens as well. Same yeah. that time. Until Same then, time. have a good evening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank Bye-bye. you.